you're very pressed for time, I thought I would just give you the answer up front. And then you can <laughs> just head on home as happy campers if you're quite satisfied. And the answer that I really find very satisfying and for which maybe the rest of this will be commentary comes not from Buddhism or from Aristotle, Plato, Bertrand Russell, or any of the other greats of the East and West that we know as the great philosophers, but from the Jewish novelist Isaac B. Singer. And he was asked on one occasion whether he believed in free will. And he says, of course I do. Do I have any choice? <laughs> so if you're satisfied with that and would like to leave now, you know, the, the, the night is young. And it's, uh, after all, it's, it's your choice. The question of free will, of course, is one of those old, louder? Are you kidding? Louder, really? How about louder mechanically? That's better than my voice trying to go louder. Yeah, the question of free will. The question of free will, as we all know, is one of the, the old, old questions of Western philosophy. It keeps on recurring generation after generation. It seems like each generation comes to as wide array of responses to it as the earlier generation with no consensus whatsoever. And the 20th century is no exception. The 21st century no, no, is no exception. And I think the reason that at least historically, why this issue of free will is so prominent in our civilization is largely, at least in large part, due to the fact that this is still, to a very large extent, a Judeo-Christian or an Abrahamic tradition in which God created us. And when we die, something really good or really nasty is going to happen. And human beings have been wondering about this and say, do I have any say in the matter, or did God just make me a pawn on his great chessboard? And whatever happens to me, I just have to go with the flow because you know, I don't have any freedom. And there are Christians who believe that, predestination and so forth, that just figured God made you in that way, and whether you're going to eternal damnation or you're going to eternal heaven, you didn't really have any say in the matter because God made you that way. And then other Christians, actually most Christians, take a very op opposite approach. Some Jews believe in an afterlife, some do not. So again, there's no complete uniformity of belief there. But one can see why the stakes would be so high. If you really do, like you and I presume, believe in gravity. It's not one of those things we're pondering in the middle of the night. So there's some things we really believe in. If you can imagine, and perhaps some of you do have this belief, such an utter conviction and the reality of a creator who created each one of us, and when we die, it's going to be either redemption or not, then knowing what role, if any, do I have to play in this? Because could the stakes be any higher? You know, if we're only here for 80, 90 years, I mean, what's the big deal? You know, it's going to be over. And then it lights out on all of our problems. The, you know, the, the truth of suffering will be finito. All you have to do is stop breathing. So that's not such a big deal. You're free or not free for 80, 90 years. It's a short story. You know. Whereas if we're going to be around for eternity, and what happens in this life is determining the vector of eternity, man, the stakes are high. Too bad there's no consensus on the answer. Now in Buddhism, of course, that whole, that whole view of there being some god a long time ago, whether 7,000 years ago or 13.7 billion years ago, long time ago that created us, runs the whole show, and then we die, and then he directs us off with punishment or reward, that's just not anywhere to be found in Buddhism. I mean, it's just nowhere. It's explicitly refuted. And so perhaps it should come as no surprise then. The question, do we human beings have free will, 
is a question you may never find in any, any traditional Buddhist treatise, scripture, commentary, or what have you. It's not one of those hot issues. So why am I even addressing it then? And how can I say this is a Buddhist perspective if Buddhists from the time of Buddha himself and then 2,600 years later, Buddhists have not been generation after generation asking, do I have free will? Do I have free will? It's not one of the big questions on the one hand. On the other hand, can we be free? Can we be free? Oh, that's a hot, that's a hot topic. It was a question that drove young Gautama at the age of 29 from his palatial home into a life of poverty, a life of a homeless person in the pursuit of truth. He wasn't going out as a philosopher, certainly wasn't going out as a theologian. He was going out with a burning question, can we be free? Not whether we can simply attenuate suffering, not simply whether we can attenuate our mental afflictions, craving, hostility, delusion, the usual suspects. Because of course we can. We all know that. You don't need to leave home. You don't need to run away from home to find the answer for that one. But he really sacrificed a lot, asking, can we be free? And that question, can we be free, already, of course, has an assumption built into the question that we're not free. We're not free of what? We're not free of suffering. That's kind of obvious. And if you take a very rational view of this, it's not the only possible rational view, but a rational view is suffering doesn't have happen for no reason. That something happens and suffering comes as a result. And can we be free not only of suffering, but the essential causes that make us fundamentally, existentially vulnerable to suffering? Can we be free? Different question, but not unrelated. But one is a philosophical question, looking for a yes or no answer. How are we constructed, created? How did we evolve with free will or not? That's one kind of question. It's not the question of Buddhism. The question of Buddhism is a pragmatic and dynamic one. To what extent can we be free? How can we be more free? Under what circumstances are we less free? I would say if a person has just taken a large dose of dadura, I've never taken it. But I understand that when you take this hallucinogenic, it so gets into the core of your way of viewing reality and distorts it by way of hallucination that you don't even know you're hallucinating. That's what I've been told. So on a nice LSD trip, you might see, see really groovy hallucinations, but you know you're hallucinating, so you know the show will be over. But apparently with Dadura, that isn't so. If you're hallucinating, if you're deluded, and you don't even know you're deluded, I would say the parameters of freedom are very narrow. The more deluded we are, the less free. The less deluded then, perhaps the more free. But how can we become free? How can we become freer? Let alone having some big carrot at the end of the rainbow. That's the, that's the bunny's version of you know, the old metaphor, because bunnies don't need a pot, pots of gold, but a carrot would be really nice. You know, the carrot and the stick kind of thing. It's not a matter of do you or do you not believe in nirvana. Buddha, I, never, I don't think once did the Buddha ever ask that of somebody who came up to him for teachings. He said, well, first of all, do you believe in nirvana or not? Will you sign on the dotted line and be a good Buddhist? I never saw a sutra or a discourse in which that was how it played out. So it's not a matter of first throwing your hat into the ring and say, OK, I'll be a Buddhist. Now, what's that going to do for me? 
but rather starting right where we are already in our experience and posing the question to our experience, how free am I? Could I become more free? And let's see where that leads. To my mind, that's a really juicy question. Where I want to start in terms of perhaps providing a key to the wildly diverse array of views about free will, I think the Buddha gives us a key, a, a key here, kind of pick up a scent and see where it takes us. What a person considers and reflects upon for a long time to that his mind will bend and incline. In other words, watch not only the old, the old cliche, look out for what you desire, watch, you know, watch out for what you wish for, but look out for what you're attending to, what you're considering, what you're reflecting upon, because when you, you do that and you make a habit of it, and your mind, almost as, you've, if, as if you've created a rut in mud, that's where the water of your attention will go again and again and again. And we'll couple this with a statement by one of my intellectual heroes, William James, and I think he nails it. And I, frankly, I think this is a key to understanding the root of a great deal of diversity of human views about a lot of things. Here's a, here's a statement, rather long one, but it's worth pondering, I think, and I will read it, although I'm sure everybody here is literate, but I like reading. The subjects adhered to become real subjects. Adhered to simply means that we attend to, that we really focus on. The subjects, the phenomena, the events, the things, adhered to become real subjects. That is, for us, they become real. All you have to do is attend to it a lot, and you will regard it as real. Attributes adhere to become real attributes. The existence adhere to becomes real existence. While the subjects disregarded become imaginary subjects. Now he's making a psychological statement here, of course, not saying ignore it and it'll go away. But ignore it and you won't count it as real. You'll regard it, if you disregard something sufficiently, it will appear to you as being merely imaginary. The attributes disregarded will come to be regarded as erroneous attributes, and the existence disregarded, and I love this phrase, an existence in no man's land, in the limbo where footless fancies dwell. Habitually and practically, we do not, we do not count these disregarded things as existence at all. They're not even treated as appearances. They are treated as if they were mere waste equivalent to nothing at all. He summarized that in one phrase, one short phrase. For the moment, what we attend to is reality. Now again, it's a, he was a psychologist as well as a philosopher, but he's not making a metaphysical statement here, but a psychological one. For the moment, what we attend to is real for us. It could be a unicorn. It could be a paranoid kind of attention. It could be any type of attention. But insofar as that attention is sustained, what we're attending to appears real to us. I think that's very deep. How does that play out? Why did I set this up as a preamble to discuss the main topic for tonight, the question of free will? Well, the reason for that is to note the different kinds of ways that people attend. Now, there's just one, one, little, more, one little phrase here again, the whole issue of meaning. This is from a really outstanding physicist, Paul C.W. Davies, and he refers to one of the great theoretical physicists of the latter half of the 20th century, passed away just a couple of years ago, John Archibald Wheeler. But I think this is too, is very relevant, and then we'll move right on. Speaking purely from the perspective of a physicist, but a very savvy one, and again referring to Wheeler, who was world class. A true observation of the physical world, he, John Archibald Wheeler, maintained. Even something as simple as the decay of an atom must not only produce an indelible record, like 
some impact on a measuring system, it must also somehow impart meaningful information. That is, for a true observation to take place, it must give rise to meaningful information. Otherwise, you can't call it an observation. You just call it one thing bumping into something else. Measurement implies a transition from the realm of mindless stuff, like electrons, protons, and so forth, to the realm of knowledge. Measurement is a true observation. Measurement requires the imparting of meaningful information. Now, he played this out in a really fascinating way, suggesting that not matter, but actually information is the most essential, fundamental component of the natural world. And out of information, we glean, we construct our categories of matter, energy, space, time, subject, object, mind, consciousness. But what is more primitive than any of those humanly constructed categories is information out of which we extract and congeal categories. So it's quite different. Interesting from a physicist and a world-class physicist, not going for the, how do you say, very habitual notion that everything boils down to matter. Actually, matter is derivative. We constructed matter. But now coming to this issue of, for the moment, what we attend to is reality. How many different ways are there to attend to, to view, to take, to take stock of human beings, ourselves and others, the world at large? Now, if we take a physicist qua physicist, a physicist just as a professionally trained physicist without the rich context of also being a human being, we can say physicists observe the purposeless behavior of inorganic configurations of mass energy. When they're tracking an electron, when they're watching the behavior of a certain molecule in this way or what have you, they don't ask, why is that, you know, why are those iron filings moving towards the, more towards the magnet? What, what do they want? What are they after? You know, you don't ask purpose of iron filings. You don't, you don't ask, why are you going? You'll look for the mechanisms that enable that to happen or bring that about. But you don't ask for the purpose. Why do the, what is it about those planets that they want to go in elliptical orbits around the sun rather than circular? Do they just like ellipsis, ellipsis better, you know? We don't ask that question. It's, just, it's kind of a silly question in modern physics. So there's a realm, a dimension here that is just purposeless, and to superimpose purpose on it is going to be called anthropocentric very quickly. Now we move to biologists, and here specifically zoologists, and specifically zoologists who are tending to studying <coughs> conscious living organisms, frogs and caterpillars, monkeys and human beings, dogs and cows, and so forth. And here we see purposeful behavior, and I, behavior, and I think none of us have any, has any qualms about that, right? That is, we go out because we're hungry. Why are you going out there? I want some food, right? Why are you, seek, why are you running after that female? I want something other than food. <laughs> but people do things for reasons. They may not have it articulated well, conceptually, and so forth. But we know that living organisms, there, there's a drive here. And if we just go right to evolutionary theory, it's all about survival and procreation. Right? So that's purpose. That's purpose. Purpose that electrons, photons, and so forth don't have. So that's one way of looking at human beings. First way is just look at us as a big mound of atoms, none of which have any purpose at all. They're just interacting in completely mechanical fashion. Another way is to look at us simply as living organisms that have evolved by natural selection, genetic mutation. And what's our purpose? Survive and procreate. Any more questions? Like, that's it. But then there are psychologists, 
who, are, who attend to us as human agents engaging in meaningful behavior, not all of which is oriented just towards survival and procreation. Go back to Greek art. Go, at, go back 40,000 years ago to paintings on the walls of the Neanderthals and so forth. Go back to the, the building of the, you know, the buildings of art museums and football stadiums and so forth and so on. This is not just for survival and procreation, but it's meaningful. We do this for a reason. We find it meaningful. Psychologists. Now, one thing I find very interesting here is if you try to take that second one, a biologist, and, and take that whole notion of purposeful behavior and try to reduce that to physics alone, it's unintelligible. It's unintelligible. Animals seeking to survive, running away from a wolf, running towards the lamb, wanting to devour it. There's a purpose there. But if you ask, no, but what's the, what's the purpose of the molecule in the wolf's, you know, in the wolf's foot or its leg? It doesn't make any sense. And likewise, if we look at behavior that humans engage in that really has nothing to do with survival and procreation, chess, <laughs> really, how many more babies are you going to have? It doesn't make any sense. So to take biology and try to translate that into physics, you wind up with gobbledygook. Take psychology and try to translate it over into pure biology, doesn't make any sense. And now, of course, I'm going to the third one. Contemplatives around the world are attending to another dimension of human existence, which, of course, may not exist, but they are certainly very intent upon it. Right? So from a psychologist, a biologist, or a physicist perspective, they say, we can't see it, this so-called spiritual dimension. We can't see it. Therefore, you're attending to something that doesn't exist. But the psychologist could say the same thing to the biologist, and the biologist could say the same thing to the physicist. You can't see it? Broaden your vision. Maybe you can see more. That it just doesn't make any sense to reduce any of these to the preceding level. That's a hypothesis. Maybe it's false. Drum roll. To go back to India and back to Buddha himself, he was a shramana when he left his, his home. He became a shramana, a wandering ascetic. And there was, on the one hand, the Brahmanic tradition, which is kind of almost like the established church, with a very clear set of beliefs based upon the Vedas, a very, very clearly delineated set of rituals that had to be done with great precision and only by people of a certain caste. Everything was in its order. But there was a significant proportion, there were really men, they were, only men were allowed to do this, that just weren't satisfied. They were basically the hippies of 2,600 years ago breaking out of the convention, the status quo, security, home and comfort, heading out to the forest, out to the jungle. And I'm sure there was a tremendous variety of them. They did not go out as a school, as an institution. They had no one leader, a cult leader, a religious leader, that was rounding them all up. If any of you have lived in India, you know that trying to get a whole bunch of Indians to agree on one thing is like trying to herd cats. And they've never, India's never had a state religion that dominated the whole country. Just not up for it. Hallelujah. So the, at that time, 2,600 years ago, when this young Gautama went out to the jungle and he encountered these multiple shramanas, these free thinkers, these radical free agents running around the body of India, he found that they'd come up with a bunch of ideas about the big question, not so much human free will per se, but the bigger picture of what's happening in the universe. Why do things happen at all? And why do things happen to us? And there were those who at that time, again, this was a very heterogeneous group, perhaps even more so than the early Greeks who believed in a wide variety of things. 
a lot of free thinkers there. There was no church, there was no inquisition to stamp them in, into shape and enforce uniformity on their belief system. So there, there were those at the time of Gautama who believed everything's due to karma. So something happened in the past. So a kind of predestination, a predetermination. The great machine was grinding on, and whatever's happening now, well, what can you say? It's karma. And so then you can relax, go with the flow. That's one way of viewing things. Now, of course, there were theists among these shramanas for a very long time, thousands of years. And note how resonant this is with, with views that go on nowadays. Everything that happens is the will of God. It's just the will of God. God wills it, you know? Earthquake in Haiti? Well, God made his decision. There it is. Live with it. The, sun, the tsunami, floods, droughts, famines, and so forth. Death of a child. And getting everything else comes up. Well, it's just the will of God. Surrender the will of God. That's one way of looking at things. And another one is fate. Not necessarily karma from the past or from some supernatural source, but just an overarching notion of fate. What can you do? It was, we were fated to meet. That kind of business. So there were a wide variety of views on the side of determinism. And then there were views, there were those who articulated or advocated a notion of indeterminism, namely that things happen for no reason at all. It's kind of like the go figure response to whatever happened. Oh, well, what can you say? Go figure. It just happens. So no reason. Things helped us skelter. In other words, chaos lies in the essence, the ground of reality, as opposed to orderliness, which could easily be interpreted as determinism. So this was the cultural, the ideological, philosophical milieu in which young Gautama found himself during his seeking, his seeking years before his enlightenment, and of course thereafter. And now well, let's just speak of the Buddha, after 30, at the age of 35, after his enlightenment. He, of course, was very well aware. He was an extremely well-educated person for his time. And he looked at the first option, determinism with the multiple flavors or interpretations. And he took a thoroughly pragmatic view, or pragmatic response to a deterministic notion of the universe at large, which of course has immediate bearing on do we have any kind of freedom ourselves, and he rejected it. But he rejected it not because of some ontological reason or an appeal to the soul or God or godlessness or anything like that, but for pragmatic reasons, stating that if you go along with that, just determinism, everything is locked in because of something absolutely outside of our control then that will stifle or undermine any sense of moral responsibility. And quite rightly. Quite rightly. If a robot starts just killing people, then you might punish the person who programmed it, but you don't start flagellating the robot or scolding it and say, robots, you, hey, you're asking the wrong question. Don't think it has moral responsibility. It was programmed that way. And if we are robots, then of course we have no moral responsibility. Blame it on my genes. Blame it on my dopamine levels, my serotonin levels. My cortical activity was not up to snuff. But I didn't choose it. It just happened. So that should really undermine the whole penal system in the sense of being, you know, punishing. Just contain such people. But notion of holding anybody responsible for the, anything they do at any time, you've just lost any ground for it. Teach a whole generation of young people that and watch for the consequences. So it stifles, undermines, de demolishes any sense of moral responsibility, but any motivation to strive for liberation. And imagine, this must have been very much on the mind of Gautama, since that was actually the, you know, the, the life-changing shift in his whole trajectory, away from a very 
relaxed, comfortable life at home, destined for the king kingship or the governorship, what have you, and off into the tra trajectory that he, he actually followed. It was his motivation to strive for liberation. Well, clearly he valued that. And so he said, don't pick up a belief as if it has no consequences. Because if you'd buy that one, that's going to undermine any motivation for liberation at all. Why should you even bother to strive for liberation? You're, you're locked in. You're in a locked-in syndrome. Freedom's out of the choice. Just maybe you're destined to become free. Maybe you're not. But, you know, chill. So he rejected it for pragmatic reasons, but then he turned to indeterminism, and he rejected it basically for the same reason. The belief that experiences arise without dependence on any prior causes, our attitudes, our prior behavior, our choices, and so forth, clearly, if it's all random, then this too, equally, if not even more so, stifles, undermines any sense of moral responsibility, and of course, as everything is just a crapshoot, then why strive for liberation? That implies a development, an evolution, a trajectory, whereas if underlying that is just chaos, then don't make any, any long-term plans. It would be just a reasonable thing to do. Now, I think there's something here going on more than pragmatism, because clearly in Buddhism there is a great, if I may say so, a great passion for truth. If the fundamental premise, and it certainly is the fundamental premise in Buddhism, that the root cause of suffering is ignorance and delusion, then the antidote isn't going to be more of the same. Right. It's got to be insight, knowledge, knowing how things actually are. If it were clear, if, the, if there were compelling evidence beyond all reasonable doubt at the time of Gautama that everything is simply predetermined, I think the Buddha would, would have said, you know, it's a really rotten truth, but what are you going to do? And we better go along with it. After all, look at the evidence. I mean, it's incontrovertible. Therefore, try to make the best of it. Oh, that that's a, doesn't really mean anything because you'll do what you were pre-programmed to do. So if the evidence were there one way or the other, compelling, incontrovertible, beyond all reasonable doubt, determinism or indeterminism, I think the Buddha would have said, okay, you've got to go with the evidence. But the evidence wasn't there. It was not clear. And if it's not clear, I think we have our first choice. If it's not clear whether it's determinism or indeterminism, the evidence doesn't compel you to believe one thing or the other. Then you're going to make a choice. Now, did you, make, did you actually make that choice? Or were you pre-programmed to make your choice? You don't know. So just go ahead and make your choice. But do it with moral responsibility. And don't undermine any possibility of pursuing freedom. A great pragmatist. Now, when we raise, especially for those of us with a Buddhist background, when we raise the question of free will, well, free will is not some kind of an autonomous entity floating around in a vacuum. If there is such a thing as free will, somebody's got to have it. Who has it? I think there's only one answer. If somebody has it, you, at least some of you. There's got to be an I in there someplace, a me, a person, that has free will. If there is no such thing as a person, no such thing at all of a self, no referent to the word I, or Alan, or Mary, or what have you, if that's just referring to nothing whatsoever, if it's an empty placeholder, then the notion that an empty placeholder has something called free will doesn't make any sense at all. But now we all know the notion of non-self. Non-self figures very prominently in the Buddhist tradition. So does that already answer the question? 
if there's no autonomous self, well, exactly what type of self was refuted? There was an occasion when the, in which the Buddha said, I do not say there is no self. And I do not say there is a self. Keep on questing. It wasn't simplistic. When there's a refutation of self, is there anything upon which different schools of Buddhism really quite consensually agree? Because clearly there's a lot of difference of beliefs, there are debates, multiple interpretations, multiple schools. That's obviously true. But when it comes to the theme of no self, no self, is there anything about which all of the schools, all the 18 schools of early Indian Buddhism, including the Theravada, the Mahayana, the Zen, and so forth, is there any? And I think, I think there is. I think this statement is really very widely accepted in all Buddhist schools, and that is the refutation of there being an autonomous self that exists either among or apart from the aggregates, the body and mind, and possesses and, let's say, controls the body and mind. So some separate ego, a self, a person, an agent, who is not the body, not the mind, stands apart from, is autonomous from them, and controls them. I don't think there's any school of Buddhism that accepts that. And not just because all the Buddhologians got together and agreed, but checking you know, with the satipatthana, with the close application of mindfulness, carefully inspecting the body as it arises from moment to moment, carefully inspecting, closely applying mindfulness to what's going on in the mind. As an empirical quest, that is a conclusion drawn. That there's just no evidence, either direct or indirect, that there is some Wizard of Oz behind the curtain that's actually controlling the whole show. Because this turns out to be a very naturalistic view of human existence. That our choices, our moods, our emotions, our hopes, fears, desires, states of consciousness, like together with and intertwined with our physiological states, are all arising in this mode of pratyita samutpada, dependent origination, but in that whole mesh, that matrix, so to speak, of phenomena arising independence upon each other. At no point is there evidence, direct or indirect, that outside of that causal nexus, there's some transcendent self, an ego, an individuated self, that's controlling and making its mark. But if there is no such autonomous self, does the word free will have any meaning any longer? If there is no self that stands outside of the nexus of causality, earlier events giving rise to later events. If there is no independent self, who could possess such free will that operates independently of prior causes and conditions? So if we're going to define free will as the act of making a choice that is not influenced by prior causes and conditions, then there would have to be a self that's making that choice and making that choice independently of prior causes and conditions, and that's exactly what Buddhism reviews. So is that answering the question? If the self is an unmoved mover, bringing in the Aristotelian notion, an agent that's acting upon other events but is not influenced by that, now that would be a kind of freedom. I stand above everything, but I influence everything. The unmoved mover. If this self is an unmoved mover, which is exactly what's refuted in Buddhism, if this is purely an illusion, is free will also an illusion? Well, there are a number of neuroscientists, but not all, that say, you've got that one right. Buddhism, chalk one up for Buddhism. Yay, Buddhism. You come to the same conclusion we have. We've been investigating the brain, not 
completely yet. We have a lot of work to do. But from all of the research we've done thus far, we don't see any part of the brain that is the CEO or the, what's the word? Operating system? CPU, thank you. There's no CPU or CEO. There's no CIA. There's none of the above in the brain. It's just this nexus of different parts of the brain and functions acting sometimes globally, sometimes locally. But what you don't find is one part of the brain controlling all the other parts. No neural correlate of an autonomous self. And of course, the body being embedded in, embedded in excuse me, the brain being Im embedded in the body with all of its complex physiological processes, and the body being embedded in the natural environment, from a neurophysiological perspective, there's no grounds at all for asserting that there's some autonomous self in here or some autonomous part of the brain that's governing the rest of the brain. So it looks like, at first glance, oh boy, great big convergence of Buddhism and neuroscience. And in fact, one very well-known psychologist, neuroscientist, Daniel Wegner, has written a book called The Illusion of Free Will. And he said it's just an illusion. It is every bit as much an, an illusion as the sense I really exist, I'm separate, I'm in charge of my body and mind, but I stand apart from them. I influence them, but they don't influence me, at least not as much. Is that a real convergence, or is it misleading? I think it's actually misleading. Not to say that one is simply right and the other one is simply wrong, but the notion that they're converging on the same reality and actually have drawn the same conclusion, I don't think so. Let's take this statement, the first one, the first line of the first chapter of the Dhammapada. Pretty close translation. I'm thinking many of you are familiar with it. All phenomena. By phenomena, bear in mind, we're talking about experiences, things that actually appear, that are experienced. We're not talking about objectively existing atoms, molecules, fields, and so forth. All experiences, one can say, all the phenomena we actually do experience, they are preceded by the mind. That is, were there no mind, no experiences would ever happen. They issue forth from the mind, and they consist of the mind. All of these experiences are visual, are auditory, are mental, and so forth. None of these lie outside the boundaries, outside the domain of mind, of consciousness, of awareness. <coughs> mind is utterly central. This doesn't take us, this is, I don't, don't believe this is a statement, a metaphysical statement of, let's say, philosophical or transcendental idealism, saying everything in the whole universe simply consists of apparitions of, of, of the mind. That's a view of one Buddhist school called Sittamatra. One doesn't need to read this in this way. But rather, rather than taking it as a statement about the objective universe existing independently of experience, which frankly is another topic that Buddhists have been ever very interested in, draw this back into experience and show the centrality of consciousness of mind for everything that arises. Mind is central. Fathoming the nature of the mind, its origins, its potential, is utterly central to the whole Buddhist agenda of inquiry. How different is that from this statement? Taking the word of phenomena meaning the same thing, all experiences. All, experience are, all experiences are preceded by the brain. They issue forth from the brain, and they consist of neuronal activity. It's not the same statement. Very different statement. Very different implications. So I think it would be good not to be too hasty to say, oh, neuroscience, Buddhism, saying the same thing. No self, no free will, no choices, no moral responsibility. 
because if everything we do is simply the result of genetic influence and biochemistry in the brain, once again, moral responsibility is finished. If you want to alter your altered behavior, and there are people who say this, you want to alter your behavior, just find the right chemical. Because that's, that's where the action is. Everything else is epiphenomenal. It's just an emergent out of where the real action is, and that's in brain chemistry. Free will. Free will. Well, the word will could be equated with volition, could be equated with intention. They're very closely related. So here's another statement, attending once again to a very central theme in all of the Buddhist teachings and to every traditional school of Buddhism. It is will amongst that I call karma. It is volition that I call karma. The essence of karma, of course, it means action, but it's voluntary action, volitional action. The very intention itself, even before it manifests in any other action other than the occurrence of the decision, the choice, the volition, the act of will, even before it manifests in speech, manifests in physical behavior. As soon as we lock on and say, I'm going to do that, in our own minds, yep, I'm going to do that. Karma has just been acted. Not the thought arising. Oh, I could give away a million dollars. Oh, I could kill that person. Whatever it may be. Just the thought arising. No, that's just a thought arising. It's like a rainbow appearing in the sky. But as soon as there's an identification with it, a lock on, that I'm going to do, that's volition. And that is karma. So within a Buddhist context, if we're going to introduce this term free will, which is not found in Buddhism, but here we are, we're living in the 21st century. Let's you know, bring it into this century, where the word free will has meaning. It may refer to nothing. It may refer to something, but it's not gobbledygook. We all have some sense, free will. It's defined in different ways. Here's one possibility. That is raising the question, to what extent do we have free will? But then we have to define it. Here's one possibility. There is a measure of free will, and now as a gradient, insofar as one can reflect on one's options. One is facing a fork in the road. One can c consider the options, and then very importantly, decide on the best course of action in terms of its moral su suitability. Actually, I'm going to rephrase that because it sounds so Kantian. It sounds like such a burden. Like, what is moral? What is moral? Oh, the hell with that. I'm just going to have some fun, you know? Let's rephrase that a little bit. I'm going to rewrite that. Because I think, I think I took that from Daniel Dennett, who is actually not a Buddhist at all. How about the ability to, as we're facing alternative modes of behavior, recognizing that there is an option. We don't always have options. Sometimes we do. There's an option. And then being able to draw on memory, that is, has this situation ever, anything like this ever risen in the past? Or is it utterly unprecedented? If something like this has arisen, then draw from memory. Relate it to the present situation. Is it a replica? How close? How close approximation to what I've experienced in the past? Draw from memory again. When I encountered something like this in the past and I acted in this way, what were the consequences? In that way, what were the consequences? So finding parallels, this is calling not only on memory, which actually the word is sati, mindfulness, is memory, but it's also calling on intelligence and imagination. Because history never repeats itself down to the iota. It may be quite similar, but it doesn't. Not all the circumstances are the same. 
So judging, well, how similar to what I know of from my own experience or that of other people, how similar, and now using imagination, well, let's diss the notion of moral responsibility, whatever that is, or moral suitability. What are we after? What are we after? I thought it was getting interesting, I think. Isn't it? Now, if I'm, what I'm really after is I just want more money because that's going to make me happy. Yay, money. Then if that's a criterion, then I got more money that way. I didn't get more money that way. Click, 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 click. And that's the thing to do because I want more money. And you've made the free choice to get money. Right? So that's one way to make choices. It has nothing to do with ethics, morality. There's a topic that I'll unpack a lot more tomorrow when we start really more in the practice and not just yak, yak, yak mode. That of genuine happiness, a sense of well-being. I love the Greek term. It nails it. It's called eudaimonia, flourishing. How might I flourish? And I love the word because it resonates not only with our own experience, but also with gardens and forests and streams. Had, not I been, had I not been snagged by Buddhism, I would have become an environmentalist, an ecologist, wildlife biologist. That would have been it. John Muir was my god. You know? And then Buddha, huh? he caught me. <laughs> but a forester can look at a forest and see whether it's flourishing. You can look at a stream and see whether it's flourishing. You can look at a garden, a field. You can see whether it's flourishing. You don't have to ask, is it happy or not? Is it healthy? Is it flourishing? And I would suggest in a similar fashion, and these Greeks were pretty smart dudes, they use this term flourishing, not as, do I feel good? Do I feel good? How good do I feel every, you know, they're not asking sappy questions. <laughs> you know, they're not singing rock and roll. I feel good. Do, 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 do. You know, they're asking deeper questions than that. If all you want to do is feel good, I think whiskey does it. <laughs> if, you, if you can handle the taste, you know. There's a lot of shortcuts to just feeling good. And I think brain chemistry really is the answer. But if you're looking at something more than I just feel good, you're looking to how you can flourish, how you can experience a sense of well-being that is not directly contingent upon how lucky are you today. Not contingent on what can I get from the world today, from you and them and this situation and that situation, but a sense of well-being that derives rather from what we're bringing to the world rather than what we're getting from it. Almost like JFK's old statement. But it's juicy. It's deep. It's not trivial. A quality of well-being that derives from what we're bringing to the world by our way of life, by the balance, the healthiness, the clarity of our minds, our insight into what's going on in terms of reality. The insight's a good thing. We can suffer less, experience greater well-being. If we raise that as like a north star, as a beacon, a guiding light, we're not making choices when I'm faced with what certainly feels like it's going to be a decision, and I'm drawing on my memory, my intelligence, and my imagination, what course of action is most likely to lead to my own and others' well-being? Flourishing, genuine happiness. To what extent do I have the freedom to follow what I decided? If I've just taken Dadura, the ability to make such a choice and follow through with it, marginal. If I just drunk 
friend of mine was for some, quite some time an alcoholic, and now just an absolutely splendid human being. But he told me when he was a teenager, he thought it was normal to drink one quart of whiskey every day. Thought that was normal for some years. And now he he's runs one of the most effective drug and alcohol re rehabilitation centers in all of Mexico. Splendid human being. But I tried to put myself into that mindset of thinking it's normal to drink a quart of whiskey every day. If you just drunk a quart of whiskey, how much freedom do you have? Or some of you, I'm sure, have heard Paul Ekman speak in one of his, his really juicy points. He's become one of my very dear friends. A refractory period. It's a very cool term, and it will unpack it again over the weekend. A refractory period is when our minds, our heart and soul, our whole sense of being here, gets caught in the grip of an emotion. It's like the rat caught in the jaws of a terrier. There's not a whole lot of choices the rat's going to make. If you ask the rat, how are you going to handle this terrier? So one of those questions may, well not as, may as well not ask. It's the terrier doing the questioning. The rat is being the questioned. Right. Hmm. What types of conduct make us less free? What types of mental states make us less free? When we get utterly in the grip of an emotion, we're filled with rage. We become utterly obsessed about something. We become fixated on something. Envy is gnawing at our entrails. How free are we? I get bored with philosophical questions. If I feel that's all they're going to remain, that to my mind already implies you're not going to get an answer. But these are pragmatic questions. Have there been, over the course of my lifetimes, when I was less free and more free? What were the circumstances? What gave rise to it? It wasn't clear at the time of the Buddha whether determinism was true or false, or indeterminate, true or false. And that's true now, too. You will find neuroscientists that write with great conviction, and I'm sure great integrity and intelligence, we absolutely have no free will. It's just brain chemistry all the way up and down. And then you'll find another neuroscientist just as good and said, not so fast there. The evidence is not that compelling. There are still, it's open for question. And likewise, psychologists, both sides, philosophers, of course, and exponents of religion all over the world, yes and, yes and no. So I would say, as a factual statement right now, there is no empirical evidence that compels us to believe one way or another. In other words, we have to make a choice about what will, we, what will we believe. Since we have the freedom, since evidence does not compel us, does not take away our choice, I don't have any choice to whether or not to believe. If I let this go, it will drop on my lap. I can't believe otherwise. I've had too much experience dropping stuff. They never go up. <laughs> so I don't have any choice here. It did just what I thought it would do. Surprise me one day. But this is not one of those things. The evidence is not compelling. Doesn't take away our freedom to choose. Within this whole domain of the psyche, the human mind, heavily influenced by brain chemistry, there's no doubt about that, strongly influenced by our genetic makeup, by millions of years of evolution, no question about it. Our social upbringing, our language upbringing, our personal histories, there's no question. To my mind, this is not debatable. These many factors, sociological, chemical, environmental, and so forth, 
these are strongly conditioning the type of psyche that each of us has from moment to moment. It should. Otherwise, we'd be unhinged, spaced out. So our psyches are a domain of our experience with which we are, to varying degrees, familiar. We know what language we speak. We know what type of emotions we're prone to, what kind of desires we're more likely to foster, to carry through with. But it raises the question, is that the whole of us? That is, here's the body. That's pretty transparent, x-rays and so forth. In a way, the the biologists, the medical doctors and so forth, they have really pretty well got the body sussed out. Here's the, the, the final frontier. But there's not much in the way of a frontier about the gastrointestinal tract. Or what does the liver do? Or what's bone marrow for? Final frontier. But they're honing in, they're getting more and more knowledge. But is that all there is? And I'm asking this not as a theological question, a metaphysical or religious question, but as an experiential question. Is that all there is to us? Is that the whole spectrum? And the Buddha spoke of what's called, from the Pali tradition, English translation, the brightly shining mind. Those of you coming from the Tibetan tradition might know it by another name, the mind of clear light. Same word, different translation. In the Pali canon, the basis for the whole Theravada tradition, the Buddha made this statement, quoted quite frequently, it's worth reading. I know of no other single process which thus developed and made much of, developed and made much of, often it's translated as developed and cultivated, like a field. I know of no other single process which thus developed and made much of is pliable and as workable as is this mind. In other words, he's speaking here 2,600 years ago of psychoplasticity, that we are not absolutely caught in deeply intractable ruts of habit. There's no question we're creatures of habit. But when developed, when made much of, when cultivated, this mind is plastic, it's, it's pliable, it's malleable. That's good news. Can be good news. Monks, the mind which is thus developed and made much of is pliable and workable. In case you didn't hear me the last time, get it the second time. There's something you can work with here. This is relevant to freedom. He continues, though, and this, is, this appears in the Pali Canon. It appears in the, in the Mahayana literature, like in the Prajapanamitra, Perfection of Wisdom. Monks, I know of no other single process so quick to change as is this mind. Could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. But now the very often quoted statement. Monks, this, bri- this mind is brightly shining, but it is defiled, or I might use the word obscured, by adventitious defilements. The mind, so to speak, gets caught in the grip of mental afflictions, delusion, craving, hostility, and so forth. It gets obscured. This brightly shining mind doesn't manifest as brightly shining at all times. It gets obscured by adventitious defilements. That's an incredibly bold statement. Because when he's saying adventitious, that is an absolutely loaded term. Adventitious means they come and go. Genetics comes and it doesn't go until you're dead, and then it just decomposes. What he's suggesting is, I mean, he's stating it, these internal causes of misery, they come and go. To use a modern terminology, they're not hardwired. Because you are human does not necessarily mean that you will always experience craving, hatred, delusion, and so forth. They come and go. 
Where do they come and go? They come and go in the psyche, in this heavily conditioned mind that we're all very familiar with, male minds, female minds, Anglo-Hispanic, and so forth and so on. But in a manner of speaking, metaphorically speaking, underlying at a deeper dimension of our own existence here is this brightly shining mind that adventitiously, temporarily becomes obscured by the defilements, the mental afflictions. Monks, is bright, this mind is brightly shining, but it is free from adventitious defilements. And so as it becomes obscured, it becomes defiled, contaminated, like a stream becomes contaminated by toxins. So does the stream of consciousness become contaminated by toxins, but it's not toxic from its core. If you have a flow of hydrochloric acid, there's no part of it that's not pungent. The acidic quality of it is right there in the very nature of the acid, right? If you have a stream in which you're pouring hydrochloric acid, that obscures the sweetness of the stream. But you can stop polluting it, and then you have the stream again. He's suggesting a dimension of our existence, a continuum, a stream of consciousness that's brightly shining, that is not intrinsically defiled by that which deprives us of freedom. And the mental afflictions are exactly that which deprive us of freedom, more and less, depending on the extent to which we get caught in their grip. So here's a big question in Buddhism. Do we have free will is not a big question. Is there a possibility of freedom? That's a big question. And the Buddhist answer is, and again, let's not treat this as religion or metaphysics or as mere philosophy, just something to philosophize about. After all, we're not observers. Sometimes I wish I were. But we're actually full participants. In both Buddhism and the existential tradition, they speak of our being thrown into reality. We somehow got propelled here. But we're right in the middle of the field, and we are players. These questions are high-stake questions. And the Buddha's assertion here, the working hypothesis, if you will, is ordinary sentient beings, ordinary means their minds have not been trained by cultivation, by development, through rigorous, sophisticated, and effective training. So the mind becomes malleable, pliable, and so forth. Ordinary sentient beings are not free. It's not an absolute. It's not like saying, we Buddhists over here and all you other people. No, not that. It's a gradient. Are not free insofar as we are constrained to the extent that we are constrained by mental afflictions such as the usual suspects, the three basic toxins of the mind, craving, hostility, and delusion. This is a very different view. Very different view from almost everything that's here in the West. I've engaged in many conversations and a fair amount of collaborative research. Psychologists, neuroscientists, almost all of them, I'm trying to think whether there's a single exception, would say that this impetus, this momentum, this tendency for craving is built in. We need it. We survived by evolutionary processes, and what got us here, that we survived and didn't wind up being a genetic dead end millions of years ago, craving. Craving to mate, craving to dominate, to be the alpha male, the alpha female, and so forth. Got to have craving. It's built in. It's hardwired. Hostility, you betcha. You betcha. Got to have hostility. And then it's only a matter of, don't go overboard. Moderation. Moderation, you know. 
Delusion in the sense of a reified sense of I am. This is my territory. This is not your territory. Keep out of my space. This is my spouse, my child, my, 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 my. That'll help you survive and procreate. So, the stakes are high. Are we simply hardwired to have what the Buddhists call three toxins, and the evolutionary biologists might say three of your best friends? <laughs> and what are you after most importantly? What's your fundamental drive? What's your highest ideal? What are you really after and what do you really want? Is it survival and procreate? Don't need Buddhism. Look at all those monks. How, how are they doing? <laughs> procreation. I was at a meeting with M at MIT seven years ago, and the question came up, especially in a very Buddhist country with like one out of five men being monks, and therefore, if they're good monks, not procreating. Why aren't they just getting stupider and stupider and stupider? Because <laughs> a lot of the cream of the society went to the monastic tradition. That's just true. You know. And why aren't they just degenerating when the best and the brightest for a thousand years keep on not producing any progeny? Maybe there's something more going on. So we come back to this brightly shining mind. It's beyond the six modes of ordinary consciousness, and by that I mean the five sensory modes, five physical senses, and our experience of our own minds. Something wildly into my mind, almost inexplicably absent in modern psychology, and that, that is the awareness that the sixth sense is not something for which you need the Twilight Zone movie going in the, you know, the, the tune going in the background. Or you have a sixth sense, do you? <laughs> Give me a break. We're aware of what's happening in the mind to some extent. Right now, is your mind agitated? Is it calm? Are you thinking? Is the mind quiet? Strong emotion arising, not arising? Are you sleepy? Are you wide awake? You don't figure this out by inference. You don't watch your behavior and say, oh, I must be sleepy. I'm falling over. <laughs> you can tell beforehand. Are you interested right now or are you just bored stiff? You don't have to see whether you're kind of trying to get off the chair. You, oh, I must be bored. The body wants to go out the door. You, know? you can tell before. There's, you can see it directly, and that's the sixth sense. It's prosaic. It's called mental perception, for which we have no counterpart in modern psychology. Would some psychology textbook writer please start putting this in? Because to overlook that is just like outrageous. This brightly shining mind is beyond our six, six ordinary modes of perception. Bearing in mind the sixth, op the sixth operates when we're dreaming. The dreamscape, the people, events that you experience in a dream, you're not picking those up with the five physical senses. They've all gone dormant. They're asleep. We've all had vivid dreams, and we are directly perceiving the events in the dream, and that's with mental perception. Beyond those six modes of perception, there is this brightly shining mind, uncontaminated by those afflictions, and that is, I would say, a source of freedom. Insofar as we can tap into a dimension of our existence, not by belief, not by simply adhering to some great authority, but by probing deeply, we may tap into a dimension of our own existence which is not already hardwired or even deeply habituated towards mindless, foolish behavior. That might be good. So the notion of freedom is something to be cultivated, not to be decided. Do we have free will or not? It's not for the philosopher to decide. Let them just go off and philosophize for themselves. But for the rest of us, to what extent am I free to make wise choices? To what extent? And under what circumstances? Well, Shantideva, now just drawing from the Mahayana tradition, 
But this is equally true for the Theravada. But it's a nice phrase from his Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. He says, a person whose mind is distracted lives between the fangs of mental afflictions. Lovely metaphor, imagery. I think, again, of the terrier and the rat. The mind that is trapped in rumination, the mind that has lost its coherence, its integrity, its wholeness, that's fragmented, that's distracted. It's really, just think about this experientially. This is not Buddhist doctrine. Is it not so that when the mind is just distracted, we just can't get it together? Our psychological immune system is down. It's like we've got an HIV of the mind. And any old thing, a bit of resentment here, a bit of craving here, a bit of neurotic anxiety there, and so forth, can come in. The palace walls are down. The coup takes place. It's a bloodless coup. It's a bloodless coup. We just come in to take over. We succumb. There was, not, there was nothing to resist. The mind was just rambling around like some, I don't know, rabid dog. Nothing to protect. So we're suggesting here the mastery of attention. It's something more focused, a bit more, how do you say, has clearer contours, so to speak, than perhaps the broader notion of mindfulness in the sense of simply a global awareness of attending to whatever comes up. Clearly, there's a time we don't want to be equally aware of whatever comes up. When you're doing a two-month retreat, that might be fine. But when you're driving a car, I hope you're not being equally mindful of, oh, twinges in my knee, tingling in my toes, oh, I just had a thought of my mom, apple pie, I like apple pie. You know, and then, <laughs> non-survival of the non-fittest. You know, there are times to be focused, you know. And samadhi, which really has to do with the unification of the mind, the coherence of the mind. Occasionally, it might imply tunnel vision, but that's only one slender strand of samadhi. Samadhi sanity. Sanity means wholeness. Samadhi means unification. You've gotten your act together. The mind has congealed. Focus on all sentient beings and the cultivation of metta, loving kindness. Focusing on your breath. Focusing on the body, feelings, and so forth and so on. But cultivating the attention being able to direct your attention where you will, at will, including the choice at times to say, I want to now just go into free fall, into free association, daydreaming. And that's my choice. And now I'm going to be attentive from moment to moment to see how my mind meanders in the pastures of experience and see where it grazes. But I will be watching it, but letting it roam free. Having a mind rather than being had by a mind is a very practical key to freedom. Having emotions rather than being caught in the grip of emotions. Even when an emotion, harmful or not harmful, emotion of being surprised, emotion of happiness, emotion of fear, which is sometimes very, very useful, emotion of disgust, emotion of sadness, happiness, and so forth not being caught in the grip, attending to them carefully, closely, attentively. Rather like having a dashboard for the vehicle of, your, of your, your life, knowing what's taking place in the mind and having the possibility of making wise choices in response. So the cultivation of attention, which is central to the practice of shamatha, or in Pali, samatha, absolutely core to that, is a pragmatic key to freedom, really pragmatic. 
there's a particular practice, and again, we'll be, I'll be teaching it what, Sunday morning, I believe, called settling the mind in its natural state. And for those of you with background in Vipassana, to at least a certain extent, you'll be very familiar with this. It's not a global awareness of simply attending to whatever arises in any of the sense fields. That certainly has its place. But this one is more focused. It is a samatha practice, or shamatha practice in Sanskrit, where you have selected a particular domain of experience as the object of single-pointed attention. But the, po- the attention is focused not on a single point. The point here is, is a domain. And the domain is that whole domain of mental experience. That domain of experience that is not visual, auditory, and so forth. That domain in wherein discursive thoughts, internal chit-chat, mental images, dreams, hopes and fears, emotions of all kinds, arise and pass. Observing, attending, non-reactively, but discerningly. It's not a blank, dumb gaze. It's attentive, it's smart. And it's not only noting what arises from moment to moment, like little staccato moments, but also it has something of a global vision and is attending to and observing and recognizing one type of mental event gives rise to another type of mental event. What I'm seeing here is not a bunch of unrelated staccato shotgun blasts, but a sequence, a matrix of events arising from moment to moment, but there is coherence, there are patterns. One type of mental state, mental state or process gives rise to certain types of consequences and another to others. Which of these is giving rise to consequences that are conducive to my own and others' well-being? And which ones undermine my own and others' well-being? This is true mindfulness. It is a key to freedom. Very practical. And that is, if I can notice, if, I'm, if some thought arises, I used to have a, have a habit for sarcasm. I don't think it's, much very, it's not as prevalent now as it used to be. But when I was in college, I thought I was kind of a smartass. And I liked to find that little bon mot, that little way to show how clever I was. I'm certainly not immune to that tendency now. But insofar as... <laughs> that wasn't a sarcastic statement. I meant that would just... <laughs> But if I note, if I'm attending to with this metacognitive ability, this, this faculty of mental perception, and I've directed that mental perception to what type of impulses are arising, and a certain situation comes up, and I see an impulse for sarcasm of showing what a smart fellow I am, and I'm going to show you by this little slippery comment that's going to put somebody else down. And I see the impulse coming up, and I recognize it. And I recognize if I speak those words, this person's going to feel attacked. Doesn't have a nice phrase, a little, a nice image for it. Sarcasm? It's like throwing a rock bound in wool, wrapped up in wool. You see this big wool come, you see this big wool ball coming. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Until you get hit by it, and then, oh. <laughs> that was sarcasm. When you see, and I'm just giving one of many examples, it could be resentment, it could be rage, it could be all kinds of things, craving, lust, obsession, it could be all kinds of things. But seeing the impulse come up and seeing it's kind of like it's offering you an option. It's like a salesman coming to your door. Saying, Would you like to buy this? It's cheap. In fact, I'll give it to you for free. Would you like to accept? And if you see what what he's offering you is actually a pot of porridge slithering with maggots, you might think, 
it's nice if you offer, but I think <laughs> I don't think so. And you've made a choice. Our minds are dishing up all kinds of things to us every moment. And some things, if we digest them, embrace them, take them in, be very healthy. And other ones will make us very sick. And moreover, the really sad part is they can be contagious. The possibility of choosing which of these impulses I will imbibe, which ones I'll take in, which one I will enact and bring out into the world, and which one's not. That's freedom. We can get that from shamatha. Vipassana probes right down to the core, the root delusion. And it's resented as a hypothesis. This is not just an amelioration of mental afflictions. It is not simply an attenuation, a temporary respite. Shamatha will do that. Shamatha is enough. If that's all that Gautama was seeking, he could have saved himself a lot of time. Because the first thing he did when he left the palace was find the Richard Feynman and the John Wheeler of Samadhi of that time, these two Samadhi experts. And they were so happy to have him as their student because he was a prodigy. He was fabulous. I think it must have been a matter of weeks. I doubt it was even months before he had ascended to the same level of Samadhi that they had. And of course, one by one, one after the other, they said, Congratulations. They weren't even jealous. They were just so taken by him. They said, come and teach with me. And he recognized that with these marvelous days of samadhi, not vipassana, just straight samadhi, just straight shamatha, that you really get, you really get a respite, a delicious respite from your mental afflictions. Just as long as you're abiding in samadhi, technically speaking, go into the form realm, achieve shamatha, achieve, achieve the first jhana. While you're abiding in the first jhana, these coarse mental afflictions don't even arise. It's really blissful. It feels really good not to have the mental afflictions chewing away at you. More abiding in that brightly shining mind. It feels really good. Yeah, you have to take a break once in a while, come out and pee. <laughs> Drink a little bit more so you can pee later. Eat something. But heck, the, the, the little breaks can be short. And you go right back to samadhi again. And you can just do that for the rest of your life. If that's all you wanted, samadhi is quite sufficient. But if you're after fruit to freedom, not simply a respite, not simply a vacation, a contemplative tahiti, away from the <laughs> hurly-burly of your psyche, then shamatha won't cut the mustard. It won't be sufficient. For that, that is exactly what vipassana is for. It's about freedom. Not a vacation, not a time out. Shamatha provides you with a timeout, which is really good. Anybody who watches basketball, you know how important timeouts are. And football. And I notice there's an enormously self-selective process for my weekend retreat here. Especially those who don't show up on Sunday. Those are the, pe those are the people who might like meditation, but they love football. That'll be self-selective. So Vipassana, in terms of true freedom, irreversible freedom, core freedom, that's it. This practice was settling the mind in its natural state is right on the cusp between shamatha and vipassana. So if I taught it to a bunch of vipassana meditators, they, they might very well respond, and rightly, Alan, you can call this shamatha if you like, but this is vipassana, or vipassana, and I wouldn't disagree with them. 
On the other hand, when I look for the sources of this practice, from my own background in Tibetan Buddhism, it is shamatha because if it walked like a duck, quacked like a duck, and so forth, it's a duck. This practice leads to shamatha, it leads to jhana. It does the work of shamatha, therefore it's shamatha. It can also yield profound and liberating insights, therefore it's also vipassana. And the Buddha made this statement, which I find so powerful. He said, for one who clings, motion exists. All these impulses arise. Remember the Buddha said there's nothing that is so quick to change as the mind. It's effervescent, it's bubbling, it's ever-changing. Insofar as, and the psychologists have come up with a really good term for this. The Buddhists have one, it's called graha, grasping. But the psychologists have captured it just recently with the term cognitive fusion. I really like that. These impulses come up, happy, sad, want, don't want, fear, anxiety, bored, and so forth and so forth. Thoughts coming up, thoughts coming up, feelings, bubbling pot of the mind. Insofar as this cognitive fusion takes place, there is clinging, there is grasping. The mind's in motion, I'm in motion. I have just jumped on the back of the bucking bronco, and boy, am I bucking. For one who clings, there is motion. Motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. And that is, you are at rest while the mind is in action. Of course, what is the reference to the word you? First, we'll just take it pragmatically. Can this be done? And is that the experience of being in stillness, being stillness, while the mind is in motion? We'll ask the deep question, but this is a purely experiential question, a pragmatic question. Is this possible? It is. It is actually possible. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. So we see a loop effect here. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going, because there's no motion. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither rising nor passing away. Because those are almost synonymous. Where neither, passing, ni- where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor world beyond nor a state in between. This verily is the end of suffering. Notion of freedom and stillness. Interesting. We'll move on quickly now. The time is going much more. Moving into Mahayana now, but the roots of this are very clearly there in the Pali Canon. This is not just some out of the blue later add-on. I've just been studying this recently. There are some very clear references in the Buddhist teachings recorded in the Pali Canon, the base of the whole Theravada tradition. It says exactly this. It's more fully developed in the Mahayana tradition, but the roots are utterly there in the earliest recorded teachings of the Buddha. And the statement here is not only that there is no autonomous ego that stands apart from the causal nexus that is a unitary entity or I. But in fact, all phenomena, not just the personal self or personal identity, are devoid of inherent existence, do not exist in and of themselves, absolutely demarcated away from, apart from the rest of the mesh of reality. Phenomena do not define themselves. They do not call their own borders. They do not intrinsically have their own parts and attributes. They do have parts and attributes, but they didn't say so. It wasn't determined objectively, all by itself. If phenomena are devoid of this inherent identity, this inherent nature, that's a negative statement, clearly. Well, okay, how do they exist? How they exist, how do we exist, we human beings, within this whole natural world? And the assertion here from this middle way view 
is that all conditioned phenomena arise independent upon three factors. We'll move quickly here. This is very deep water, but time is short. And that is these phenomena, which we are certainly part, arise independent upon prior causes and conditions. That's just good science, simply good science, reasonable thinking. Phenomena, the wholes, arise and exist independent upon their own parts and attributes. So take away all the parts and attributes of anything, you don't have the whole left over all by its lonesome. This is not a sequential dependence, it's a simultaneous dependence. Right now, this table, for example, it does exist. I mean, there's a table right here. But start taking away its legs and the top platform and so forth, and then there's no table left anymore. It's not sequential, but still, were there no legs and no platform, there wouldn't be any table here. But the most interesting one is the third one. And this, again, has a direct bearing to the issue of freedom. Conceptual designation. <coughs> Nominal designation. According to the middle way view, it is our conceptual imputations, projections, if you like, our verbal designations which demarcate objects that are object makers. What we have when we're just sitting back and watching is a whole array of appearances arising arising to all of our senses, all of the six senses. And no appearance has any other appearance. They're just happening. Appearances, appearances. And then the conceptual mind literally tries to make sense and does make sense out of appearances. And how it does it is by making objects. And the objects have parts, they have attributes. And it's the conceptual mind that is the cookie cutter that comes out and demarcates. Here is a hole, and it has these parts and attributes. And here's another hole. And now these two holes, they causally interact in this way. But the holes don't designate themselves. They're designated by the mind and by articulation. In other words, the world that we experience arises relative to the way we conceptually designate it and verbally label it. It's not already out there, self-labeled, self prepackaged. Interesting idea. Can we make it practical? Because that, sound, that sounds suspiciously like philosophy to me. <laughs> that makes me nervous. Time is so short. I mean, that's, that's the deal for me. I'm going to be 60 in a couple of months, and man, I don't have time to waste. People like me get heart attacks. You know why? Because i got a heart. What can you do? So I, don't I really don't have any time to waste. I did when I was 20. And when I was 30, I had a good deal of time to waste. That time's passed. If this is true, that reality rises up to meet us relative to the way we designate it. In other words, this is a tango. We're not here in a solipsistic, phantasmic world just making it all up. That doesn't make any sense. But nor is it all prepackaged, pre-designated, pre-labeled, and we simply have to discover the prepackaged things that are already out there, just waiting to be labeled. If it's something in between, in other words, a middle way, then the world becomes something dynamic, profoundly, essentially interrelated, interrelated, subject-object. No independent subjects, no independent objects arising in mutual interdependence, like left and right, up and down. No left, no right, no up, no down. No subject, no object. If that's the case, then something happens. And we say, oh, what a bummer. What a bummer. That's just terrible. It seems like the bummerhood is out there. And we simply, 
we simply identified what was already true, you know, intrinsic bummerhood. But is there any play here? Is there any malleability? Is there any wiggle room? Do we have any possibility of choosing how we designate things? Bummer. I didn't get into Harvard. I didn't try very hard, but I didn't get in. Isn't that a bummer? By shifting one's conceptual designation, the reality that is so designated shifts. It's really a core truth in physics. And that is really smart physicists, people like Anton Seilinger, John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking, and the list does go on and on. A growing number of the absolutely cutting edge, top drawer physicists are coming to the conclusion that what physicists know about is not the objective world as, exist, as it exists independently of all measurement, independently of all conceptual frameworks. But the world that is known to the physicists is one that is arising relative to the type of questions we're asking, the type of measurements we conduct, and the way that we interpret the information that we get from the measurements. The world is rising to meet us as we are rising to meet it. Mutual interdependence. Not solipsism, not make it up as you go, but not just discovering what was already prepackaged either. Designate it differently, and it's not only your view of it has changed, it has changed. Because there is no it apart from the way it's viewed. But let's come to adversity then. Adversity, 200,000 people, the last I heard, have perished in the earthquake or due to the earthquake in Haiti. Quarter of a million from the tsunami. And how many from cancer and so forth and so on. Adversity strikes. And as an outsider person who lives in California and looking at Haiti, with my background, you see I'm well clothed and so forth. I have no qualms, and I don't have, to, I don't have to hesitate about asking or raising the question, was that adversity that struck Haiti? For me, there's no wiggle room from my perspective. Of course it's an adversity. Of course they're worthy of help. A great human tragedy. So much suffering, there's no question. If you're a person living in Haiti, and you're still living, was this an adversity for you? They may very well, like me, say, this was adversity for so many of my neighbors, my countrymen, and so forth. But wasn't it adversity for me? Or was it perhaps an opportunity to bring out the very best in them? Of compassion, of altruism, of service, of empathy, a sense of connectedness, a sense of coming together, a sense of maturity, a deepening of wisdom. Was this adversity for me? I think that's a question about which we have choice. I don't know anybody who lives in Paiti right now, but I've had close engagement with Tibetans who have been through catastrophic circumstances in Tibet, especially during the Cultural Revolution. Catastrophic by any account, for which I would have no qualms about saying from any perspective that I'm from, that was a, that was a tragedy what happened in Tibet. There was no good aspect to it. It was just, it was a genocide. It was utterly tragic. There was no good for the Chinese. There was no good for the Tibetans. It was just delusion pounding a weaker people. And it just makes one want to weep. So was that a tragedy? Was that an adversity that struck Tibet? No question. Of course, yes. But then I've met Tibetans who were in it, who spent 17 years, 30 years, 35 years in concentration camps. 
I've known them. I've spent a lot of time with them. And see how they, from their own perspective, inside, not in my cushy, comfortable position from living in California, inside, how they shifted what they experienced. And there's a gradient here. The more deeply they were, they understood Dharma, they practiced Dharma, they had cultivated and developed their minds in Dharma before they got incarcerated. Not after, before. To the extent that they become spiritually mature, they had the opportunity to make a choice. How shall I view what has struck me? I may view all my other prison mates only with compassion. Adversity has struck them. But has adversity struck me? Or is this a time simply for deepening compassion? Conversation, rather often quoted one by now, but worth quoting again. A person who came to the Dalai Lama escaped from Tibet quite a few years after the the general exodus. I think it was 17 years he was in concentration camp. And that meant a lot of torture, a lot of starvation, almost inconceivable misery. And the Dalai Lama asked this person, while you were there in the prison, tortured on a regular basis, did you experience fear? And the person responded, yes, I did. I experienced fear. Dalai Lama said, what did you fear? He said, I feared that I would lose compassion for those who were torturing me. That's a choice. That's a choice. And so this raises a whole genre of practice. It's explicitly demarcated in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition as lo jong, of a shifting of attitude. It's often called mind training, which is good, but it's kind of general. Lo means attitude, and jong means to train, to flex, to work with transform. It's a shifting of attitude to see that whatever circumstances arise, and I mean without exception really, in principle, whatever circumstance arises, we are not compelled to view it in one and only one way. The objective reality does not have the muscle to compel us to view it in only one way. There's a possibility of viewing it in multiple ways of shifting the way we conceptually designate, we view, we label, we discuss, we think about whatever befalls us. There's a freedom there to alter the very reality we're experiencing by shifting the way we designate it, we label it, we regard it by way of our attitudes. That's for the present moment. Let's go deeper yet. Time. In almost all of science, time is considered to be absolute. Never mind Newton, never mind Einstein, uh, you know, the banishment of absolute space and time, absolute matter, and so forth. Almost all the sciences, almost all the time, are regarding time as absolute. What really happened? What really happened? When did life first really emerge on this planet? Was it three and a half billion years ago or four and a half billion years ago? Exactly how did it happen? When exactly did that Big Bang occur? What exactly was the inflationary period? What exactly did this planet form? It's just natural, isn't it? That what happened really just happened, and what really happened. In other words, it was already a done deal. The past is really absolutely happened. And how can we, through the study of geology, cosmology, astronomy, and so forth and so on, and natural selection, biology, evolution, fossil remains, and so forth, how can we figure out what really happened and when it happened? It looks like the The past is carved in granite. 
except for it's less mutable than that. Looks like it's absolutely there. And here's the present and then the future, all fluffy. But what if it's the case? This really, this is from Stephen Hawking, not some, you know, person who's been meditating too much. <laughs> what if time itself has no inherent nature? What if time really isn't absolute? But time itself arises relative to, once again, conceptual designation. In other words, the past does not inherently, absolutely, objectively, precede the present, nor the present absolutely, objectively, inherently precede the future. What if? Stephen Hawking, in a paper published, it was in Nature, one of the top, top journals, with another physicist, I think his name was Herzog. Herzog, Herzog, published an extremely intriguing paper. And the point they're making starts out quite commonsensical. Whatever we know about the past, we know about by way of information we're getting in the present. Always. Which information in the present shall we attend to? Which shall we choose to attend to? To draw deductions, inferences about the past. What type of questions shall we pose to the past? What kind of systems of measurement, what kind of conceptual framework shall we use to make sense of the information that we get in the present about the past? Well, the way Stephen Hawking presents this is straight from quantum mechanics, but applying it to the cosmos at large. It's called quantum cosmology. He said, if you have a system, some body of space with stuff in it, electrons, elementary particles, this is, standard class, this is standard quantum mechanics. This is ordinary. You have a system. You're about, to, you're about to make a measurement. Before you make the measurement, standard interpretation of quantum mechanics, before you make the measurement, you cannot say, and it is not true, that in that region of space there are already electrons, protons, other elementary particles that have discrete location and momentum, and they're already there waiting just to be discovered. It's not true. And it's not only, and this, I had this impressed upon me by my mentor in physics when I was studying physics, it's not just a, limited, a limitation of knowledge, actually the empirical evidence is compelling. It's not just that you don't know where they are, but they aren't. All you can really say of that region of space is you can describe probabilities, probability functions, probability of waves. You can say there's a certain possibility that can be quantified, that's what quantum mechanics is so good at, a certain probability that there's an electron here, a photon there, what have you. But it's not really there. And the point at which that probability function collapses and you move from the realm of potentiality to the realm of actuality, where you can say there is an electron there, a bit fuzzy around the edges because it doesn't have absolutely distinct velocity and location at the same time, but let's not worry about that for now. But once the measurement is done, the probability function collapses. You move from the realm of potentiality to the realm of actuality. And now you can say there are a bunch of electrons in there. And they are there. But the act of measurement is crucial. The act of measurement in the standard interpretation collapses the wave function. You go from potentiality to actuality. Well, that's just ordinary quantum mechanics. 
Stephen Hawking, being a man who doesn't probably know how to think small, takes this principle, together with John Wheeler and others who've done the same thing, and applies it to the whole cosmos, and specifically applies it to the past. The past, before we make any measurements, has no more substantial, concrete, distinct reality than something in the present, an unmeasured system in the present moment. The past doesn't have a favored ontological status, that it gets to be concrete where the, the, only the present gets to be only potential. The past exists only as an array of possibilities until a measurement is made. But the measurement's always made in the present. The present collapses the wave function with respect to the past because we have no access to the past apart from measurements made in the present. Which suggests that the past is not a done deal. It's not a given. It's not absolute. It's not really there waiting to be discovered. The past rises up to meet us relative to the questions we pose to it, the type of information we glean from it, and the sense we make of that information. The past is in flux. There are multiple possible pasts depending on which questions we pose, which kind of conceptual designations we bring to bear, let alone the present and let alone the future. The future's a piece of cake. But this would suggest that all events of the three times, past, present, and future, all of them equally, arise relative to cognitive frames of reference, not in and of themselves. Now, the psychologists have a nice little quip, which actually captures a lot of that. I kind of like it, actually. It's never too late to have a happy childhood. When you think of your childhood, think about how many millions of moments there were. Really. From infancy through adolescence, how, how many millions of moments? What shall you attend to? And now we come back to William James. For the moment, what you attend to is reality. What shall we attend to when we think of our infancy, our childhood, our upbringing? What shall we attend to? We can't attend to all of it. I don't think anybody has memory that good. I can remember every single moment that ever happened to me. I don't know. But certainly for us more mere mortals, that's never so. When I think of my childhood, I know it's extremely sketchy. And probably half of what I'm remembering never took place anyway. How shall the past, when we're wondering about determinism, and determinism in a Buddhist context, with no autonomous egos that stand outside of the causal nexus, does Buddhism really compel us, if we are good Buddhists, you know, believing the Buddhist doctrine, does that really compel us to think that it's all a big machine and there's no real self doing anything anyway and it's all just psychophysical events taking place, grinding away in this great big machine of samsara? And it's all just basically back to determinism, which the Buddha explicitly refuted? Or is it more interesting than that? How does the past ever influence us? Only by way of what happens in the present. The past never leaps out of the past and lunges at us, gets us in the grip like the terrier and the rat. However, the past is ever influencing us. It's only because of something happening now. What are we tending to now that enables the past to influence us? And is there not freedom there? To determine how shall the past, how shall I allow, how shall I enable the past to influence me now. And I'm going to make some choices. I can't determine, I can't decide who won the Battle of Waterloo. 
He doesn't care. And many things that took place in the past, it's not up for me to decide. When the United States become independent, etc. No, that's not up for me to decide. How does that influence me? Oh, they've got a choice there. What shall I attend and how shall I attend to it? And by making choices on those points, we modify how the past influences the present. Oh, that's interesting. Final point in Vajrayana, really briefly now, because this is going way up there into the Himalayas. It's not only the path, the past, that is not carved in granite as absolutely done deal, objectively real. Not only the present that is malleable, waiting to be designated and arise up to meet us, depending upon how we tango with it, the future. How does the future influence us? Well, of course, by what we're attending to in the present. If we hear tomorrow on the news that a great big meteor is going to come and, hit and wipe us all out in six months and there's just not a dang thing we can do about it, well, then we'll all be influenced by that great big meteor, meteor that before it ever strikes. But it's not the meteor doing it. It's something happening right now that's influencing how we're responding to our pending destruction. So meteor striking, or let's take a more happy possibility. What if every sentient being, without exception, has the capacity of this brightly shining mind right down to the core, Buddha nature, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. Every single one has the capacity to achieve enlightenment. And if we point to any individual sentient being, we'd have to say there's just no reason you shouldn't attain enlightenment sooner or later. And I'll take that finger and say, how about you? I'm actually quite intent on becoming enlightened. I would like that, all things considered. So a working hypothesis, all right, it's only a matter of time, since I don't plan to give up soon to become enlightened. But it's not yet. It's lying there in the future. But let's imagine it's real. It's going to happen. Let's just imagine, pretend. As a working hypothesis, after all, I don't know, so why not choose? I choose to believe that I'm going to be enlightened one day. Why not? Who can prove me wrong? Maybe I won't, but until proven otherwise, that's going to be my working hypothesis. I choose to believe that one of these days, lifetimes, eons, whatever, there's going to come a time when it's going to be Buddha Allen. <laughs> and somebody's going to really respect me a lot. <laughs> Buddha Allen, that day will come. One of these days. And it seems like it's absolutely in the future. Because I look at my mind now and I say, whoa, not a Buddha. <laughs> yeah, a lot of work. But let's just imagine there's going to be a day when there's Buddha Allen. But let's imagine that it's not absolutely separated from the present moment. Let's imagine that I could take that future reality, lasso it, and draw it into the present. Since there's nothing absolute, absolutely separating present from future. And I will simply take that future reality and say, I'll buy that. I'm going to take that in right now. And knowing full well what I'm, going to do, I'm doing, I'm going to assume the identity of being now the Buddha that I will be, because absolutely nothing separates the two of us. I will, I will adopt what's called divine pride. Since it is real, it's just not real yet. 
But since that future is not absolutely in the future, any more than the past is absolutely in the past, but is relative to the present, I'm going to simply choose to knowingly adopt the identity of being a Buddha now. Take the fruition as the path, develop divine pride, but of course it's sheer lunacy to think that, oh, I'm a Buddha, but mm, of course you people are not. Well, then that's just, that's just kind of fabulous arrogance and ridiculousness. But actually start attending to that dimension of reality for everyone around us. It's called pure vision. I'm attending to the reality each of you will become, but that's not absolutely in the future, so I'm going to bring it into the present and develop pure, pure perception and attend to that dimension of everybody's reality here and now. Not ignoring the fact that people are suffering, their mental addictions and so forth, seeing through that to a deeper reality. Choice. Once again, choice. Last slide and we're finished. We started out with a spectrum. If we look at our own identity, who we are, what's going on here, purely from the perspective of physics, then we see that really all that a physicist can see of us is the stuff that physicists are very familiar with. There's nothing, there's no mysterious elements in this body. Like, gee, look at that. It's really ordinary. Electrons are electrons, but you know, potassium and magnesium and calcium and it's just really ordinary stuff. All the way up, all the way down. It's just the stuff that physicists are ever so familiar with, from elementary particles right up through molecules and chemistry and so forth. It's just the same old stuff. And it's mindless, it's unfeeling, and it's desireless. Molecules don't have desires, they're mindless, they don't feel anything at all. And if, you, if that's the, the, the bandwidth that you want to attend to in looking at human beings, then we are, in the, world, in the words of Daniel Dennett, mindless robots, composed of a whole bunch of smaller mindless robots. Because you just get a whole bunch of mindless robots and make a whole bunch of them, all you have is a whole bunch of mindless robots. It doesn't get more interesting, it's just more and more of the same. So that's one way, and actually, it's true. I mean, there's, there's truth to that. Have you, ever, have you never behaved as a mindless robot? I have. I have lived down to the physicist's expectations time and again. We can look at ourselves just as animals. And I've heard some philosophers, a good friend of mine, very fine philosopher, so passionately convinced we are just animals. There's nothing to us but animals. You're animal all, up, all the way up and all the way down. You're just animal, and you are here to survive and procreate. And we're genetically programmed to do that. And if that's the bandwidth you want to look at, it's true. And there are human beings that live down to that expectation. And you look at them and say, how are you exactly are you different from a dog? <laughs> I bark more frequently. <laughs> there are psychologists that look at that through that bandwidth and say human beings are conscious. We are social beings. They're very big on that. It's very true, too. And we're oriented towards hedonic well-being. That will, what, what will make us happy? The arts and music and sports and entertainment and living life to the full. And that means lots of travel and entertainment and listening to having a wide variety of experiences, eating all different types of food, experience and appreciation of all different kinds of music, having a bunch of kids and having to get out of the house soon. And doing that for a long time, and then you keel over at the age of 90 and say, wow, that was a life well spent. You really, you lived it to the hilt. There wasn't a single continent you didn't experience. Good for you. <laughs> There's something to that. And then we bring out this nasty word that so many people really abhor, 
religion, uniting with our deeper essence, uniting with our ground, the core of our being. It's one way of looking at it. And here, what, is, what makes us distinctively human? We don't procreate more. I think the cockroaches are much better at that than we are. We're not always smarter. Some of the things that human beings do are sometimes just mind-bogglingly stupid. <laughs> if a dog did that, you'd send it to the pound. But we are distinguished by our understanding, our yearning, and our capacity for understanding, not just to survive and procreate, and not just to get entertain ourselves, but the type of understanding that Gautama is after, a truth that shall make us free. Human beings do that. Other species may. I don't know. But human beings do, and that I do know. Human beings have the capacity for, and often we enact, a yearning to, to embody virtue deliberately, not just genetically, which is also important. But we actually have the capacity, and many people have the willingness, or even a passion, to cultivate virtue, to embody virtue, to live exceptionally ethical lives. And they chose to do so, and they did it. Human beings do that. And the pursuit of genuine happiness, not simply having a good day, encountering pleasurable stimuli, but cultivating as a farmer cultivates a field, cultivating a way of life, cultivating a mind, cultivating insight that brings us genuine happiness and perhaps even liberation. So the long and the short of it, I think, is that freedom is something that we can have more of. And we can be wiser in the choices we make. And we can avoid states of consciousness, situations where we have less freedom to make wise choices that are truly conducive to our own and others' well-being. And if one could lead a life in which one is constantly free to make wise choices for oneself and others out of compassion, out of wisdom, never constrained, never hampered, never caught in the grip of anything, clear, luminous, unobscured, wise. That would be a type of freedom that means something. And that is the Buddhist hypothesis. That we have the potential for that. And to realize that potential is what it's all about. So, that's that. I hope it's useful. <laughs> we have a few minutes, less time than I would wish. But if I said something really outrageously ridiculous, I hope you bring it to my attention quickly, because time is short. Any questions, comments, observations? Yes. Um, your Rubik's are just briefly, but um, I don't know much of anything about Buddhism. Mm. Uh, is there any parallel of whatever kind, to whatever extent, to the deep concept of freedom and any other Definitely yes. Definitely yes. Yes, I will certainly will, yeah. Since, since um, it, it, the question was very succinct, and I think, and if I in any way misphrase it, you'll tell me. Uh, we have this very noble and very rich term with the corresponding understanding of eudaimonia. It goes back to Aristotle, it goes back to other of the th thinkers of Greek antiquity, translated as human flourishing, translated as genuine happiness, two standard translations. Is there anything comparable in Buddhism that really looks like, yeah, that's, the Buddhists had that too? The answer is yes, definitely yes. And the Buddha drew a distinction between what we nowadays call hedonic pleasure, which is not base, crude, or bad. That's really important. This is not the bad guy. 
But the type of pleasure that we derive, for example, from having good health, getting an education, having clothing, lodging, uh, and the Buddha said also, when he was discussing this in one, in one discourse on happiness, being free of debt. <laughs> I think modernity forgot about that one. But free of debt, he said, there's that whole realm there. Having enough to eat, lodging, shelter, clothing, medical care when you need it, very important, and being free of debt. And he said, there's on one side. And we see none of those are bad. I mean, I would really like to have all of those. He said, there's that. And then he went over to the other side. And seeing clearly this is not a, a you know, good versus evil kind of thing. It's really important distinction. And that is all of that we'd call hedonic. And that is they arise because of these fortuitous circumstances that came along. And then he spoke of the, the joy, sukha. The sukha of what he called simply blamelessness. Blamelessness. And that is being able to look back at the end of a day, for example, or the end of a life, and looking back, and this is an ethical perspective, at the end of the day and saying, by gum, today I was really quite a harmless person. I don't recall deliberately harming anyone, and I made a point of that. It wasn't by accident. And I chose not to be harmful, injurious, and I wasn't. And moreover, when I could, I was actually of service on occasion. There's some satisfaction in that. And it's not what happened to me, it's what I brought to the day. And he said, that's 16 times better than all the other ones. <laughs> why, why he came up with 16, I don't have a clue. But here he's talking about eudaimonia, oriented towards ethics. Because that's what blamelessness is about. How did I behave with my body, speech, and mind? And can I look back and my heart is at rest? My heart feels good, good day. Or very important, end of a life. I would really love to die consciously and have that opportunity to look back say, okay, it's over. You're dying happy, you're dying with regret. What's up? So there's that dimension. It's oriented to shila, ethics. And then he spoke elaborately on a many, many occasions of the joy of samadhi, the joy of jhana. And he said, this is a joy, a sukha, not to be feared. Now, could attachment arise towards it? The answer is unequivocally, yes. But if I achieve samadhi, if I achieve some profound state of meditative stabilization and I get really clingy to it and attached to it, you know, nobody else, unless I have small children, a dependent, nobody else suffering, and moreover, the fact that I got more didn't mean anybody else got less. That's the thing about eudaimonia. Hedonic is just about invariably competitive. I was thinking of an ex exception, and there are exceptions. If I'm really enjoying, because I was watching one a few days ago, a beautiful sunset. Well, granted, I mean, not everybody can watch that same set, same, same subset. There's not enough space on the ground. But the fact that I'm enjoying it doesn't mean that somebody else couldn't. So not everything is competitive. Most things are, of the hedonic. Most things are competitive. It sets us up for strife, right? Eudaimonia never does. If I'm more ethical, you're no less ethical. Nobody got any less. And the more I have, and I know this from people like the Dalai Lama, so people who are exceptionally ethical, it actually makes other people happy. So it's kind of contagious, right? So there's that domain just from ethics, but then there's a domain of, ex of cultivating exceptional states of mental balance, coherence, composure, collectedness, samadhi. And this is really one of the great discoveries not made by modern psychology. Because they're not looking, they're not asking the question, therefore not, not collecting the data. But it, th this kind of data has been collected for millennia in the Hindu tradition, and then piggybacking on them, the Buddhist tradition, and so forth and so on. And that is an, an extraordinary discovery. And gosh, this is not 
it's just not a religious belief. I, I cry when I people think people think, oh, there's a religious belief. It just happens. That when the mind is sublimely balanced like that, bliss flows out of the mind like water out of an artesian well. And it's not contingent upon pleasant stimuli. It's coming because the mind is healthy for the first time. And it's not pained by the afflictions, distortions, and so forth. So there's a bliss, and that's eudaimonia. Aristotle, I know I'm going on and on, but I do that, so you have to get used to it. <laughs> Aristotle defined eudaimonia as a being at work of the soul in accordance with virtue. A being at work of the soul, in other words, process, not a destination. A being at work of the soul in accordance with virtue, and should there be more than one virtue in accordance with the highest virtue. That's pretty universal to my mind. So samadhi is not the highest virtue, but it's on that trajectory. Mental balance is better than mental imbalance. Mental coherence is better than being fragmented, distracted, and succumbing to mental entropy. And so there is, there's another dimension of well-being, and it is a sense of true well-being that arises from cultivating the mind. And then there's the ultimate joy of liberation, of moksha. And that's, that's the core. So all three of those stemming from ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, shila, samadhi, prajna, each, each of those has its corresponding eudaimonia, or authentic right happiness. Right happiness is there. But it's so important because I, as, uh, being, having, having been a monk for 14 years, it's very easy for really gung-ho Buddhists to start thinking, well, that's all that really matters. That's what yeah, hedonic is for, you know, that's for pigs. But we human, we monks, you know, we don't mess around with that kind of, we're not in the trough. And that's, that's how Einstein referred to, you know, the, the pursuit of happiness. He said, yeah, that's the ethic of a pig in the trough. And he's talking about hedonic, you know. But to not disparage, I mean, anybody who's attending to Haiti it's a time to think about their hedonic well-being, not thinking how can they achieve enlightenment in one lifetime. So first things first, lodging, clothing, medical care, food, being out of debt. You can't become a monk if you're in debt. Buddha won't allow you. You have to get out of debt first. Pay your debts, pay your cock. If we go back to Socrates, pay off the cock, the rooster, and then you can become a monk. So one supports the other. But I'll end this with a quote from uh, Thomas Aquinas. And the way he phrased it, he's a little bit of, I think, just unpacking, but very little. He said, the whole point of the political life is the contemplative life. And po by politics, he didn't mean what we talk about politics, like what happens in Washington, D.C. I think what he meant by the political life is the higher range, the whole bandwidth of the pursuit of hedonic pleasure. And that's education, it's hospitals, it's, it's freeways that work, it's national parks, and so forth and so on. And it's all of that. But then one asks, I think, I have to ask, what was the point? So here I am, I'm actually quite in good health now. And I've had enough to, food, I've had enough to eat. And I've got a warm bed waiting for me. And I don't have any debts. Now what? In a way, so what? Is that just more so I can repeat today, tomorrow, and just keep on? Is that it? You know? And this is what Aquinas addressed. And I think this is a universal truth. It's not a Roman Catholic truth, explicitly. What's the point? The whole point of the pursuit of hedonic well-being is the contemplative, the genuine happiness. That's the whole point. And if you never get to the point, you miss the point. You're welcome. So are you satisfied with our splashing around on the shallow end of the pool? <laughs> it's 9.30. I want to respect your time. You've been very patient, so I hope there's some benefit here. 
and I wish you a good night. And we'll start meditating for those of you coming back. See you tomorrow morning. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.